Well, before we begin this morning, we need to make sure that we are ready to study God's Word, prepared to concentrate and think about the things that the Lord has for us from John chapter 2. So we begin with uh, confession of sin, which means that in the privacy of our soul as an exercise of, the, of our priesthood, we admit to God whatever uh, sins we have committed uh, that we need to deal with. If not, then we just a time for silent prayer to prepare for uh, the teaching of God's Word. So let's bow our heads together in opening prayer. Father, everything we have, we owe to you. You provide us with the air we breathe, the food we eat, the jobs we have, the All of the things necessary for our physical sustenance derive from you. Father, we thank you for the additional superlative blessings in our lives that uh, we enjoy so much. But all of those, too, are due to you, not to our own efforts. They're all due to your grace. And for that, we give you honor and glory. And it's our privilege as members of your royal family to gather together to worship through the study of your word each week. You have given us the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher, who helps us to comprehend the deep things of the word of God. And so now as we study your word, we pray that you would challenge us, that that the Holy Spirit would illuminate the thinking of our soul to the truth of Scripture, and that under his ministry we might store it in our souls for future use. That this might not be a time of academic study, but a time that drives us to renovate our thinking, that we might have our souls saturated with divine viewpoint, that we might live for you in every aspect of our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. We continue our study of the Gospel of John. We remind ourselves again that John wrote this specifically to demonstrate that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He says in John 20, 30, and 31 that there were many other signs that Jesus did. John is a writer of the Gospels that uses that word samion, the Greek word for signs, more than any other, to emphasize a sign is something that signifies something. It's It's a pointer to something. And it's these signs that he emphasizes in the Gospel. And there are seven plus the sign of the resurrection. He uses as evidence, he marshals them as a lawyer marshals his evidence together to prove a case. And he is setting forth an argument, not an argument in the sense of a hostile disagreement or discussion, but in the legal sense of building a case. And he builds this case to show that Jesus is the Messiah and that by believing we might have life in his name. And so we are studying this morning the first sign, which is the transformation of water into wine. Let's begin chapter 2, verse 1. And on the third day, this opening phrase links it to what has transpired in the first chapter. And there we saw that, that there were four days in the life of John the Baptist that were concluded with the calling of Nathaniel as a disciple. There Jesus picked up six of his disciples he picked up. Andrew and his brother Peter, John and his brother James. Then he picked up Philip and Nathaniel. So he has six of his disciples with him at this point. And we come to the third day uh, after he left uh, the area around the Jordan where John the Baptist was baptizing. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And we know from the Mishnah that the the weddings... uh, traditionally took place under rabbinical instruction on a Wednesday. And on the third day there was a wedding, so this is on a Wednesday, in Cana of 
Galilee. Now let's take a little time to look at uh, background to marriage. How was marriage viewed in Israel during this time? According to the Talmud, now the Talmud, you've heard me mention two different Jewish sources. Let me explain them. The Mishnah, M-I-S-H-N-A-H. The Mishnah was a collection of the teachings of the rabbis from about the 3rd century B.C. up through the 1st century, so 2nd century A.D. And they addressed all sorts of questions as to how to precisely apply the law of Moses to all the details of life. I have a copy at home. It's six volumes. Then the Talmud came a little later. And the Talmud is a, uh, the writings or the co- a commentary on the Mishnah by various rabbis. So these two works give us a lot of clue as to what it was like in Israel during the time our Lord walked on the earth. The Talmud says, He who has no wife is not a proper man, is not a whole man in that sense. And this is an extension of the thought we find in Genesis that it's not good for man to be alone. In the Talmudic commentary on Leviticus 19.2, the rabbis taught that one means of sanctification of man was through the marriage relationship. Now, we know that's not true. That sounds almost as if it's a Roman Catholic idea that people get sanctified by engaging in various uh, ritual activities, including marriage and Celibacy, and I always wondered how marriage, if marriage was part of uh, sanctification or an ordinance, a means of grace, how celibacy could be too. I mean, it just has always confused me. It seemed like an internal contradiction there. But according to the, the rabbis, marriage was held in high esteem and was necessary for man to fulfill his role in creation. And remember the first mandate that God gave man in the garden was to be fruitful and notice the order, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So first marriage and then family and then subdue the earth. And all of that of course takes place prior to the fall. So we learn from that that marriage predates the fall of man, it predates sin in in the earth and in the human race. So we learn from that that marriage was not designed to solve any problems related to sin. So marriage is not a problem-solving device. Now, a lot of people think that the way you handle problems in life, perhaps, loneliness or whatever it might be, is to find a wife or to find a husband. But marriage does not solve problems. When you get two people together who have sin natures, it often creates problems. The only solutions that uh, the scriptures offer are spiritual solutions that must be applied. So we learn from that that in marriage, uh, no person in marriage is any better than they are outside of marriage. It is their individual character and spiritual growth that provides solutions. So marriage was not designed to be a problem solver, but it developed uh, prior to sin entering into the human race. The rabbis had a rather odd way of doing exegesis. And in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for man is ish. And to form the word for woman, they added the feminine ending to it, which is isha. This is uh, spelled, uh, th- this mark here represents your olive. I, um, just I-S-H is the word for man. And then I-S-H-A-H is the word for woman. Now, what they would do, and usually this was written with a yod there, what they would do is they would take, they would look at this, and they would take these two letters, and they would say, that reminds us of the name of God, which is Yahweh. See the yod and the H, Y-H-W-H. This is the te- called the sacred tetragrammaton, or four letters, the sacred name of God, which is usually pronounced Yahweh. And uh, at one time, the Old English, they transliterated the Y with a J, 
and they inserted the vowel points from Adonai, and it became Jehovah. That's the derivation. Jehovah is not a Hebrew word at all. The Hebrew word is Yahweh. So the rabbis would look at this, and they would say, hmm, the Y and the H remind us of, of God's name, which is Yahweh. And so when Yahweh is part of a marriage, then you have a good marriage and a relationship with the Lord is, is there. But when, when you take God out of the marriage, when you take the Y and the H away, then you're left with just these two letters. And that would be Aish, um, <clears throat> if you had a different vowel point there. And that, then, is the Hebrew word for fire. So if you take God out of a marriage, then all you have is fire and hostility. Now, their conclusion was great. Their way of getting there was a little odd. But it shows that the, the rabbis had their priorities correct and understood the spiritual significance of having God at the center of a marriage in order to have a, uh, a successful marriage. In fact, if you study the traditions, they put a high priority in marriage and they saw that marriage predated the fall, so marriage was more important than anything else, including a funeral. So if someone were to die on the same day as a wedding, then their funeral and any grieving was to be postponed until after the wedding. Because a wedding is pre-fall, and a death is the result of the fall, so anything that predates the fall of man was more significant than that which came after the fall of man. So any... Wedding ceremony took precedence over a funeral, and all of that would be put off. Now, John writes, on the third day, there's a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now, there were various towns in Israel called Cana, and we're not precisely sure where this particular Cana was, but it seems that it was the Cana that was located just north of Nazareth. Nazareth is located up here in Lower Galilee, where I'm pointing with the pencil there. And across the valley to the north, approximately five or six miles, was a small village, a very small village by the name of Cana. And Paul, I mean, John emphasizes Cana of Galilee as opposed to another Cana in Judea or in Samaria because the wedding customs were slightly different in Galilee than they were in Judea. In Judea, certain things would have been included that were not included in Cana. And so we learn from this that the text of John 2 accurately reflects what one would see in a wedding in Cana as opposed to a wedding somewhere else in Israel. Now, this would not have been known to someone who lived a century or two later in the 1st century or 2nd century A.D., let's say 150 to 200 A.D. Liberal theologians want to say, of course, that there's nothing supernatural in the Bible. The Gospels simply reflect these traditions that grew up around Jesus. And you have this extremely arrogant, in my opinion, extremely arrogant group of men called the Jesus Seminar. And these scholars get together every year and they've made a big thing about going through the Gospels and trying to decide which verses and which phrases and which statements accurately reflect the historical Jesus and which ones don't. And so they basically get their little razor blade out and take away about 80% of the Bible because they don't think it fits their preconceived notions of of, uh, how Jesus should have acted. But what we learn from this is that it's obviously someone very familiar with the culture and the, the customs of early first century uh, Judea and Galilee, who is the author of this gospel. So it fits with the claims of Scripture that it was an eyewitness who wrote this as opposed to someone a century or two later. It's a wedding in Cana of Galilee. How did the Galileans... Uh, go about a wedding? What was, their, what was their customs? What was their custom? First of all, the bride would dress in her father's home. Then the groom who was at his home would send the bride, uh, send his best man and other friends who were called the friends of the groom. He would send them to her house to pick her up and bring her to his house. Now, she would not know the precise time that they would arrive. She had to be dressed and ready. 
See, that is analogous to the rapture. That we are to be ready for the Lord to come at any time. The church is the bridegroom. I mean the bride, and He is the bridegroom. And He will come for us at any time. And we do not know when that should be, so we should be ready. Then there would be a great procession from the Father's house to the groom's house where she was protected and surrounded by the friends of the bridegroom as they brought her to him. When they arrived at the groom's house, the first thing that would take place would be the signing of the wedding contract. This was called in in Hebrew the ketuvah, from the root to write kathav. They, They would sign the ketuvah, which was a very detailed legal document. We're not talking about a romantic endeavor here. This is not a lot of, of roses, uh, roses and perfume and wonderful sentimental music. We're talking about a very rigorous, traditional legal ceremony that would, that would begin the marriage ceremony. They clearly and precisely defined the nature of the relationship between the bride and the groom and they spelled out every single detail in precise legal language. You don't find it an emotional event. There's no butterflies in the stomach looking deeply into one another's eyes as they proclaim their love for one another throughout all eternity. In fact, it seems rather uh, almost rather cold and unemotional to us. And I have a will read to you what a ketuvah from that period read like. On the first day of the week, whatever the day of the month it was, let's say the 15th day of the month, year 3075 since the creation of the world, the era in which we are accustomed to reckon here in the city of whatever, here in this case the city of Cana, how so-and-so, that's where you put the groom's name, the name of the groom, the son of, put his father's name, with the surname, and then you put their surname, said to this virgin, and there you put the name of the bride, the daughter of, and you put the name of her father, and then her surname, or family name. So you clearly spell out who each individual is. Be thou my wife, according to the law of Moses and Israel, and I will cherish, honor, and support, and maintain thee in accordance with the custom of Jewish husbands who cherish, honor, support, and maintain their wives and children. And I herewith make for thee the settlement of virgins, 200 silver zuzim. So it's sort of a reverse dowry. He is paying a certain amount of money and bestowing. This is her wedding settlement on her. So she has her own money. It's not just that she's totally dependent on her. She has some of her own, own money, which belongs to thee according to the law of Moses and Israel. And all of these financial matters are spelled out in the Ketuvah. They list all of her possessions, whatever she has from inheritance from her father, and who that is to go to if they have children or if they don't have children, if she dies before the children. All of this is spelled out in addendums to the Ketuvah. So he's going to bestow upon her 200 silver zuzim, which belongs to thee according to the law of Moses and Israel, and I will also give thee food, clothing, and necessaries and live with thee, so his responsibilities are clearly spelled out, and live with thee as husband and wife according to universal custom. And this, and here's the bride's name is is put here, and this bride consented and became his wife. Notice how even down to the clothing is spelled out and how he will take care of her. The wedding outfit that she brought unto him from her father's house, so all of her bridal garments, the wedding outfit that she brought unto him from her father's house in silver, gold, valuables, wearing apparel, house furniture, bedclothes, all this in the name of the bridegroom. The said bridegroom accepted in the sum of X. So there's a property evaluation of everything that belongs to her, and the bridegroom accepts it in the sum of X, and the bridegroom consents to increase this amount from his own property with the sum of Y, making it a total of, and then you add it all up so she knows exactly how much money she has. Isn't this romantic? (laughs) Can you hear the violins in the background and the candlelight? No. It's very clear and precise. And thus said, and you have the name of the groom, 
the responsibility of this marriage contract, that this wedding outfit of this additional sum I take upon myself and my heirs after me, so that they shall be paid in the best part of my property and possessions that I have beneath the whole heaven, which I now possess and may hereafter acquire all my property, real and personal, even the mantle on my shoulders shall be mortgaged to secure the payment of this marriage contract of the wedding outfit and the addition made thereto during my lifetime and after my death from the present day and forever. And then the name of the bridegroom. The bridegroom has taken upon himself the responsibility of this marriage contract and of the wedding outfit and the addition made thereunto according to the restrictive uses of all marriage contracts and additions thereto made from the daughters of Israel in accordance with the institutions of our sages of blessed memory. It is not to be regarded as a mere forfeiture without consideration or as a mere formula of a document. We have followed the legal formality of symbolic delivery between the groom and the bride, and then list their names, and we have used a garment legally fit for the purpose to strengthen all that is stated above. Everything is valid and confirmed. So they would read the ketuvah out loud to the guests at the wedding, and then they would sit down, and the groom and the bride and all of the witnesses would then sign the ketuvah. And once it was signed, this gave their marriage a foundation in law and property. Notice the emphasis on property throughout this. One of the more interesting things you will learn is that when Thomas Jefferson originally penned the Declaration of Independence, the Declaration of Independence, and he had the phrase life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The original phrase was life, liberty, and property. Because they recognized, and he changed it later, which I think was a mistake, because they understood at that time that property and individual ownership of property is fundamental to uh, all forms of freedom. And in the Bible and under the Mosaic Law in the Old Testament, there's a lot of emphasis on property ownership, that the, the biblical norms of property resided in the family, not in the state. Marriage was not a state function. It was really, at this time, a family function. But it was ultimately rooted and grounded in law. One of the things we learned from all of this is that according to the uh, examples given in the Mosaic Law, Things like property tax and inheritance taxes are fundamentally contrary to principles of freedom. Property taxes are basically saying you're going to pay X number of dollars to the state so that you can use your property. It's a form of rent, claiming that the land ultimately is not owned by you, it's owned by the state. And that has certain religious implications as the state deifies itself as the absolute owner of property. And it is contrary to... Uh, the true development of family freedom and the support of the third divine institution of the family. So that's just something to remember when you choose elected officials that those who put a lot of emphasis on raising property taxes and inheritance taxes, the higher they go, the less freedom you have. It doesn't matter what the money is supposed to go for. Fundamentally, it's anti-freedom and anti-family. So after the, the couple then exchanged their vows, they would wash their hands, which was a sign of purification and fellowship with God and the cleansing of sin. Then they would pronounce a benediction. Then they, everyone would go out and they would have a marriage supper. Following the marriage su supper, there was a toast with wine. A benediction and blessings to God were pronounced. And the couple would then be led in Judea to a bridal, cha bridal chamber by the friends of the bridegroom. But that isn't mentioned anywhere in this particular uh, passage. So you don't have that formal ceremony in Galilee. What you have is the wedding of the, the marriage, of course, was finalized that night. But they would go from the wedding directly to the wedding feast and begin that. And wedding feasts usually lasted up to seven days. Sometimes they lasted as long as two weeks. So the bride's family was required to provide food and beverage for all of the wedding guests for a minimum of seven days. So that was both a social requirement as well as a legal requirement because there's examples in the literature that if a family ran out of food and beverage during those seven days, then they could be sued in court 
for not having provided the right sustenance. So this is a major issue in their culture when they suddenly run out of wine. So we're told here in verse 1, on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. And there we have your basic existential verb that she was there in the imperfect tense that Jesus' mother was there as opposed to and Jesus also was invited. And the implication to this is that Mary may have been living in Cana at this time. She's probably very close friends with the family who's uh, providing the wedding feast. And so she has a position of responsibility. If she were a guest, she would know that the wine was running out. She had to be in some sort of position of responsibility and oversight at the wedding feast which makes her part of the wedding party, maybe even part of the family. This could have been a sister, a cousin, someone like that. And she has been given the responsibility to take care of some of these logistical functions related to food and beverage. So she knows that the wine's about to give out. In contrast to this, Jesus had been invited, as well as his disciples, the six men with him. Remember, Nathaniel is also from Cana. So it might have been that he's also a friend of the family. So they were all invited to this particular wedding. that Some people will say, well, that's why the wine gave out is there were these six extra men there, or seven extra men. And that's a, that's a rather superficial interpretation of the passage, especially when you realize that there was supposed to be enough to take care of all the guests for a minimum of seven days. And then in verse 3 we read, And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus came to him. Now, we saw last week in our study of the doctrine of drinking, that this was truly alcoholic wine. It was probably diluted at least one part to three parts, but it was alcoholic and it was good wine because, as we will learn, it was the standard practice to have the good wine first. And then when the guests became a little tipsy or after they had had two or three glasses of wine and couldn't quite taste it as well, then they would ship to the uh, uh, Thunderbird or Boone's Farm or... Now you're telling me something about your background, okay? So then they would go to the cheap stuff. But they had some good wine to begin with, and Mary comes to Jesus. Now, why would she come to Jesus? Remember, this is, we're going to learn, this is the first of his miracles. She has no clue what he's going to do. Remember that. She's not coming to Jesus because she thinks Jesus is going to turn the water into wine. She does not have anything in her experience, background, or frame of reference to anticipate what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is her oldest son. Jesus has taken the place as the head of the home in some aspects with the death of his father, Joseph. Mary is faced with a major social and perhaps legal problem here, and so she is going to someone she trusts, someone in whom she has confidence because he has good judgment, and he has the ability to perhaps to come up with some solution. They can't run down to the stop and go and get a case of Thunderbird or Mogan David, as the case may be, but they can get something. Jesus perhaps can solve the problem. So she comes to him and she says, they have no wine. (coughs) And look at Jesus' response. It sounds a little abrupt to us in the English, (coughs) but it's not. He calls her woman. Now this in the Greek, at the Greek culture at that time, is basically what we would say by using the term ma'am. He's giving her a, a term of respect. He's not being disrespectful or harsh. He's not calling her mother because he wants to emphasize the fact that right now we're changing our relationship. You need to stop thinking of me as your son and begin thinking of me as the man who has the mission of going to the cross and dying for your sins. He says, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. About six or seven times in the gospel, Jesus uses this phrase, My time has not yet come. It is not yet my hour, not yet my time. Every time he uses that, it's a reference to the cross. Remember that. To understand the dynamics of what's going on here, he's relating 
the issue with the, with the wine and the absence of wine to his going to the cross. His performing his messianic duty to die on the cross as a substitute for the sins of the world. So with that, we have to stop and see a little about what's going on here in terms of the symbolic aspect of wine. The picture that's presented here is of Jesus as the source of joy and happiness. This was one of the themes that runs throughout the the prophecies of the coming Messiah throughout the Old Testament. As with the Messiah, there will come perfect blessing. Uh, perfect joy and perfect happiness. The sick will be healed. The, those who are lame will be restored. The use of their limbs. The blind will be given sight. There will be joy for all men under the reign of the Messiah. So the picture here at the wedding in Cana is a picture of Jesus as the source of happiness and joy. This is further illustrated by the by the joint use of two, two other symbols, the wine and wedding. The wine throughout all of Scripture is used to illustrate the joy of the Lord. The psalmist wrote that God has given us wine, given man wine for the joy of his soul. That wine is always associated with happiness and joy, especially for the, with the, the Jews with their understanding of the Old Testament. But John did not write this. He's talking about what happens among Jews at a Jewish wedding in Cana, but he's addressing the gospel to the Gentiles. The Gentiles also, especially the Greeks, had a, had a tradition of associating wine with joy. For the Greeks, and also for the Romans who worship Bacchus, who is the same as Dionysius, they, Dionysius and Bacchus were the gods, the god of the of the vine. They were the god of wine. And the, the wine was associated with a source of happiness. But what took place in the cultic worship of Dionysius, they would go up into the groves where they had these places where they would have these bacchanals, these feasts, these drunken orgies. And as they got drunk, you would see the distortion, the misuse and abuse of wine, and it would turn ugly and it would turn violent. And they would bring in animals for sacrifices. And the sort of the priestesses that, that were involved here would then bring in these animals for the sacrifices. And those who were all <clears throat> had become drunk from the wine uh, would then express tremendous cruelty and just rip these animals apart while they were still alive. So you see the, the negative side to happiness here is that which brought happiness also brought cruelty and pain and, and sorrow. So there was no balance in a Greek culture with wine. It was at one time a source of happiness, but also a source of great misery as well. There's another element at <clears throat> the wedding feast that is important for our understanding, and that is these enormous... Uh, water pots that are there that hold about 25 to 30 gallons of water. What's going on here? Why would there be these large uh, stone water pots there? And that is, it says in verse 6, Now, there were six stone water, po- water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons. The Jews were obsessed with their relationship with God. And so that emphasized spiritual and moral cleansing. We read in Mark 7, 1 through 4, that the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered together around Jesus when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands. They're obsessed with physical cleanliness because it relates they think, in their misinterpretation of the Mosaic Law, to spiritual cleanliness. So the water here speaks of a relationship with God. It's water for purification, for cleansing, so that they can have a relationship with God. As much like we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the water is symbolic to the Jew of the fellowship with God and relationship with God and thus to be cleansed means you have a relationship with God and then have joy. 
So for the Jew, there is also this symbolic connection between the water and joy. So joy is what ties all of these different elements together, the wedding, the wine, and the water. And they all come together under the theme of joy and inner happiness. So Jesus, uh, Mary comes to Jesus and she says, they have no wine. And Jesus says... It's not my time. I provide joy comes with the death of Messiah on the cross. He immediately takes this wedding event and ties it to the redemptive solution at the cross in his mission as the Messiah. And that's what John is doing writing this. He's saying this wasn't just something that miraculous that he did in Cana, but this signifies his role as Messiah, that just as he transformed the water a Jewish symbol of joy into wine, a Gentile symbol of joy, in order for there to be uh, at this wedding, for, for there to be wine at the wedding, for everybody to continue with the wedding feast and the celebration and exemplification of joy. He demonstrated in this first sign that he and he alone is the source of joy and happiness. And this demonstrates his messianic credentials. That's what's going on in this episode. So Mary is right when she comes to Jesus because she knows that her son can do something. But she's wrong because she's also, there's this element that she is pushing him a little bit. Now there's another application of this, and that is for those, especially among Roman Catholics, who think that Mary has some kind of in with God. You see, one of the latest developments in Roman Catholic theology is the idea that Mary is an intercessor with Jesus. So we don't pray to God, we pray to Mary, and somehow she's got pull with Jesus, and she's going to convince Jesus to answer your prayers. But what we learn in John 2 is Mary doesn't have any pull with Jesus. She comes to him for a favor, and he says, what do I have to do with you? And the point is, and he doesn't even call her, her name's not even mentioned here. That's how far back John is pulling us away from the significance of Mary. He doesn't mention her name. Jesus doesn't mention her name. He, he's going to solve the problem to demonstrate his credentials, but as Messiah, not as her son, she has no real sway with him. And by calling her woman instead of mother, he puts her in her place. And she takes it. She shows tremendous maturity here because she realizes the implication. She doesn't get on to him. She doesn't correct him. She doesn't straighten out. You need to respect your mother a little, boy, a little more, son. She doesn't give it any of that. You moms know what I'm talking about with your adult children. You need to let them uh, be adults. And she recognizes that he has properly put her back in her role, that he is the Savior and she is no longer to relate to him as a mother. All of this dynamic takes place and she just turns to his servants, has no idea what's going to happen, but she knows whatever will happen will solve the problem. And she says, whatever he says to you, do it. She has no special pull with him. This is not the Mariolatry heresy of Roman Catholicism here. In fact, the whole idea of, the, of Mary and Jesus is comparable to a very ancient uh, idea in pagan religions called the mother-child cult. In, uh, Egyptian, in the Egyptian pantheon, you had Isis and Osiris. In uh, the Greek pantheon, you had Sibylle Attis cult. In uh, uh, others, you had the Astarte Tammuz cult. But there's always this idea of a mother who gives birth to a child. That child then gives, is given birth to in the spring, lives through the summer, dies in the fall, comes back to life in a resurrection cycle throughout the years. And what happened in the early church is sometimes missionaries would go into areas and they would try to show how there's not a lot of difference between what the Bible says and Christianity and what you're practicing in your religion. And that's still common today. You see that with many, many Christians when they witness, they're talking to somebody, and rather than show the, the complete contrast between biblical truth and this other person's ideas, they don't want to offend them, they don't want to make it harsh, they say, well, well, what you believe is like this. Let's bring you closer, let's show the similarities. And what happens is you start to water down 
and dilute the truth of Scripture. The divine viewpoint of Scripture always confronts very strongly the human viewpoint solutions of man. And so never compromise the gospel when you present it. And that's what happened in the early centuries of Christianity. There were more and more compromises. And so you, you find in northern Africa and Egypt, for example, little figurines that they used to represent Isis and Osiris, the mother Isis and the baby Osiris. And then after Christianity came to the area, they just renamed them Mary and Jesus. Same figures, same people. And so that's how this idea came in. And later theologians used the word theotakos, God-bearer, to refer to Mary, instead of recognizing her as the Christotakos, the uh, mother of the humanity of Jesus. She was not the mother of God. She is not a co-mediatrix or co-redemptrix. She is not to be prayed to. She she was not immaculately conceived. She was born a sinner, just as anybody else. And as we saw in the first hour this morning, the virgin conception took place not because Mary was without sin, but because God the Holy Spirit uh, fertilized the egg in her womb. There was no human man involved. The sin nature comes down through the man not through the woman, and when, when the woman ovulates and that egg that, that has 46 chromosomes throws off 23 through meiosis and, the, uh, and polar body uh, dis, uh, disgorges those extra cells then, or extra chromosomes, then God the Holy Spirit provided 23 new chromosomes, perfect chromosomes, untainted by sin, so that Mary could conceive of the humanity of Jesus Christ untainted by the sin nature derived from Adam or Adam's original sin. Now, let's get back to our passage. So, there are six stone water pots there. Notice the detail. John wants you to understand every detail there. This is what an eyewitness account looks like. He's not giving us generalizations. There were not five not seven, not just some stone water pots. There were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification. So everybody could wash their hands. This is the plumbing system. This is the wash basin. So everybody can wash their hands and be purified so they can have, have their meal and enjoy the, the, uh, the feast. Six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. In the original, it gives you the precise amount. For us, we're not sure what it was, so it's somewhere between 20 and 30 gallons. Notice the precision. This is an eyewitness. He's giving us every detail. Verse 7, Jesus said to them, that is to the servants, fill the water pots with water. Now normally, when you have a big container and you're going to fill it with water, you fill it up to about an inch or two inches of the top, don't you? But notice what the text says. They filled them up to the brim. In other words, nobody's going to be able to come along later and say what has happened is they filled the water pots up halfway and then somebody poured the wine in. Remember the custom where you mix the water and wine that we talked about last week among the Greeks? John makes it very clear there was no room to add any wine to this. It was filled up to the brim with water. You couldn't add something to it. So it's a very precise account. And he, verse 8, Jesus said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they draw out, they take their, their ladle and they draw out some of the water and they take it to the head waiter who's ignorant of this whole process. He has no idea what's been going on. He's in another part of the house. He may be outdoors. And they take this water to him, which has now, in this process, been converted to wine, because Jesus took the whole, the whole plumbing system, all the water designed to give everybody to purify them, and he has turned it into wine. So there's no water left. Just six stone water pots full of wine, let's say 30 gallons, that's 180 gallons of the best wine ever created on face in the history of mankind. Better than uh, Chateau Lafitte Rothschild. Superior wine, because it comes from the hand of God. 
And the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and didn't know where he had never tasted anything like this in his life. And he wanted to know where it came from. And he called the bridegroom and said to the and accuses the bridegroom of just hiding the stuff. I mean, this is a very strong accusation. He says, every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk, and last week I pointed out that the Greek word here is methusko, which doesn't mean when men have drunk freely, it's when men are drunk. In other words, once they've had a little too much and they can't really tell the difference between the good stuff and the cheap stuff, that's when you pull out the cheap stuff. So normally he says, every man serves good wine first, and when men have, when have become drunk, then that which is poorer. You have kept the good wine until now. You're hiding things. You're keeping it from us. So all of this detail goes to show, number one, that it was alcoholic wine. Number two, that it was excellent wine. And for for there to be wine, this is a side point. What has to take place in order to turn grape juice into wine? Fermentation. Fermentation takes time. And what we learn here is that the Lord Jesus Christ created wine instantly. It was good wine. It had all of the appearance of having been aged and having been fermented and gone through the whole process. But when God creates something, it has the appearance of age. Now let's apply that to the original creation. When God created the earth and restored the earth in Genesis 1-2 through the end of the chapter, and those six days of restoration, and God created trees and animals and man, and he restored the earth, it had the appearance of age. That means if you saw Adam five seconds after God created him, he would look to you as if he were 30, 40 years old. He would look like a mature man as if he had already had 30 or 40 years behind him when he just had five seconds. You would look at a tree, and that tree would have all of the appearance of age. You would date. things to it to test its age, and it would come up 50, 60, 100, 300, 500 years of age. So when scientists come along and try to date the earth with all forms of radiometric dating, it will give the appearance of being very, very old, but that appearance is deceptive because when God creates things, they are created with the, not to deceive people, but when he creates a mature man, he's going to have the appearance of being mature. He didn't create Adam as a, as a one-second-old infant. He created him as a mature man. So he has the appearance of age. And that's just an important side point to understand the dynamics of creation. So what has taken place here? What is important here? Verse 11. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. Now remember John was with Peter and James on the Mount of Transfiguration. It was on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus and his three of his disciples went up to the top of the mountain. And there he removed that cloak that invisible cloak that shadowed his eternal glory. And they saw him for who he was as the Lord of the universe and as the Son of God in all of his radiant glory. Now John does not have that conception of glory in the Gospel of John. It's not what we're talking about here. When Jesus was at the wedding in Cana and he turned the water into wine, nobody saw anything. With the exception of three or four of the servants and Mary and the disciples, nobody else saw that. All of a sudden, they were just getting incredible wine. Wine that they, the likes of which they had never tasted in their lives. But they didn't know where it came from. They didn't know that Jesus was back there turning the water into wine. But yet it says His glory was manifested. You see, in the Gospel of John, we have a different conception of the glory of God. Not the brilliant flashing forth of the essence of God, but of a God who cares about the mundane problems and cares of human existence. That here Jesus, almost in obscurity, is meeting the needs of people. 
and there's nothing there to emphasize him or his ministry, but he is going, he's providing for the needs of people, and it is a symbolic of his messianic role as the one who supplies joy and eternal happiness, the only source of true joy and true happiness in human existence. So if you want to be happy, if you want to have real stability in life, tranquility, contentment, it doesn't start with the details of life. It starts with a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the more focused we are on who and what Jesus Christ is, the more we can experience that tranquility, contentment, and joy that is ours only through a relationship with Christ and not in any other way. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you again for this opportunity to look at your word this morning, for the tremendous lessons that underlie the text here. By understanding the backgrounds, the custom, the culture, the details, we're able to take out from these, these passages the significant spiritual truths that you have for us. And we see Jesus in his glory not as the one who flashes forth the essence of God, but Jesus is the one who cares about the everyday needs and desires and cares of mankind. That just as he cared about the trivial details of running out of wine at the wedding feast in Cana, so he cares about every detail in our lives. And he tells us that he is the one who supplies all of our needs, and he is the one who is the source of our joy. And that he, as the Messiah, as the God-man, is the one who supplied the basis for our eternal happiness through his work on the cross. And that becomes ours by faith alone in Christ alone. So, Father, we realize the truth of what John the Apostle is writing, that it is by these signs that we may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. It's not by emotion. It's not by feeling. It's not by subjective impression. It is by the historical reality of evidence, of the rational presentation of truth. And it is by believing that truth that we have life in his name. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here who does not know Christ as their Savior, is unsure of their eternal destiny, that right now in the privacy of their soul they would say, Father, I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, and I accept that free gift, faith alone in Christ alone. So, Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to feed on your word this morning. May it nourish us. May we remember these things and be encouraged by them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.